God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let us worship God. Almighty God, you are the Father, our Father, and you are the Father who sends his Son into this world. We thank you for the coming of Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the gift of your Son, the beloved one who was rejected, the Savior who looked defeated when he went to the cross, but present with us now. And we pray that you would continue to be present with us by your Holy Spirit. Show us in his death the victory that crowns the ages, and in his broken body the love that unites heaven and earth. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 235, All Glory, Laud, and Honor. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us then show our love for him by confessing our sin in penitence and faith, knowing that we depend upon him for all things and especially for our salvation and reconciliation with him. Let us pray together. Gracious God and heavenly Father, maker of heaven and earth, you are good in every way and your word is true. We thank you for graciously sending your Son, who went forth to Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins. 
We confess this morning our sinfulness and need of your divine pardon. We have failed to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Show us mercy, we pray, forgive us our sins, and strengthen us for obedience in the week ahead. Protect us from the lies of Satan and the voices that would cry out against the glory and righteousness of your Son. Fix our eyes firmly on him. Sustain us as we boldly confess to the world the truth of his gospel. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The Lord, people of God, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor requite us according to our iniquities, because of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, he has removed our sins and made us new. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven, and the Lord does not hold that sin against us. This is the good news of the gospel. Let us say, praise be to God. Followers of Christ, the apostolic instruction to the church, one of them anyway, is to pray. The scripture tells the church to pray for one another, that you may be healed. It teaches us to pray earnestly that what is lacking in our faith may be supplied, that God may make us worthy of his call and may fulfill every work of faith by his power. These are some of the ways that the scripture teaches us to pray. It also says for all that we need and lack for the well-being of others that we may do no wrong for our improvement in Christ, our growth in um, in in God's truth and grace and uh, holiness. Now, there are those today who challenge the church's prayer, and I hear it fairly often. It's almost become a trope, sort of a a slogan or a way of, of just saying the same thing over and over again. I hear it usually after a major national tragedy. You'll hear it come up, um, is prayer really enough? I hear that often. Or prayer does nothing. It's a characterization of Christians in prayer, and it's an ignorant one at that. And I think sometimes we as Christians just sort of let other people sort of tell us what we are and what we believe and who we, you know, what we think. We need to be careful about that because we don't believe that all we should do is pray. The church has never said that. The church would say that we are to be engaged in daily service, um, that we are to be uh, trying to to help people um, recover from these tragedies. The church is always, in its, uh, when it's properly listening to God's word, wants to uphold law and order in society. It wants people to be held accountable for the things they do that are wrong. There needs to be forgiveness, of course, but also people being held accountable. So all these things are part of what the church says about things that are, are bad and, and tra- tragic in this world. But that's left out of that kind of characterization is prayer enough and a lot of times those people who say that are even just mocking the church because they don't believe there's a God so your prayer is meaningless and I have to say we don't believe it's prayer that changes things or or makes you know is what will make everything different we believe God is the one and that's why we pray to him so uh, again those nuances are very important so don't be discouraged in prayer and don't think that 
that it has no uh, value or meaning for us as the church, and don't let people push us around um, regarding prayer. We need to be praying. So listen to the apostolic instruction. Prayer, praying for each other, is a daily service that we owe to God and one another. Scripture would say that that's a regular part of the Christian life. If you do not pray for others, then you deny them a service um, that Christians are called to perform for each other. It's a way of giving to each other. Such prayer is a Christian discipline that we all must have. So pray every day. It is best for our prayers to be first thing in the morning. I think it's good to start that way. That's how I try to start, even if I get to the end of the day and I'm worn out and I don't get to um, the, the prayers as much in the evening as I do in the morning. In the morning, it's a wonderful way to start the day. And so we should perform that duty. It is, a be- it is best for our prayers Uh, although it's well to pray throughout the day, we should remember it's good to start the day with prayers. Our prayers for others are called intercessory prayers. We have that in our worship, and from our worship we go out and continue that service and that um, act of love for others. Intercessory prayer should be concrete, not general. I think sometimes we just load our prayers with flowery oration. And... um, it's okay to be literate and, and to, to have uh, quality to our prayers. We try to, I try to make sure that happens in our worship. But it's, it's also good to be succinct. And so when we pray, when there's, in a minute we'll have the prayer for intercession here in worship, and you're given, it's a bidding prayer, and you're given a chance to add your prayers to it. And you better be quick because there's not a lot of time. <laughs> I don't have time to sit around and wait for you to develop some long Say it. Just say it. If there's someone on your mind that's sick, name them. And that's all you have to do to join the prayer. So it's good to, to be praying in that, that um, uh, succinct way and concretely. The interest in these prayers is for specific people, specific difficulties, and therefore specific requests. That's true for intercessory prayer. As Christians pardoned of our sin and reconciled to God, know that God hears our prayers and does respond to them, contrary to what many in our society would say. And our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us to pray, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us to pray. And therefore, let us take this as a serious work of, that we do as a church, a, a work of God's grace, and that we contribute um, to the world, even if they don't want it. We pray for them. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say together, Amen. Our hymn is number 163, At the Name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess him, King of glory now. Tis the Father's pleasure, we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was the mighty word. At his voice created. Bring it to sight. All the angel faces, all the hosts of light, thrones and dominations, stars upon their way. All the heavenly. 
season to receive a name. The lips of sinners unto whom he came, faithfully he bore it Please now join me in prayer. Almighty God, our gracious Father, we give to you our thanks and praise for your goodness in creating us, for your mercy in redeeming us, and for your faithfulness in sustaining us, even when we have been unfaithful to you. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who, as the apostle wrote, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We praise you that he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey to the shouts of Hosanna by the crowds, but while their praise turned into shouts of rejection, he went before us in the way of suffering and glory, and now you have highly exalted him. Give to us We pray the grace to follow him in sacrificial discipleship. Here are our prayers for our own and other people's following Jesus Christ. Enable us truly to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to regard others as better than ourselves, looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We pray for the church, we pray for our our brothers and sisters in Christ, for fellow members of his one body, especially those for whom confessing Jesus Christ means persecution and possibly death. In such places as Syria or Iran, Nigeria, Afghanistan, North Korea, give your church grace and strength of faith, keep us prayerfully mindful of the plight of our brothers and sisters. Hear our prayers. Continue to strengthen us, we pray, and enable us to shine like lights of your grace in this world. We do make our prayers for those who govern us, for our President Joe Biden, our Senators Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow, our Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and our local city councils, 
our courts in the land. Guide them, O Lord, as they exercise authority and work out your purposes with their rule. Give them wisdom as they respond to economic turbulence, the destruction from the tornadoes, to China's inhumane treatment of the Uyghur people and its aggression, Russia's assault on Ukraine and the violence in our own cities. Hear our prayers for those who rule over us and for peace in this world. Give life and health, comfort and relieve your sick or distressed servants. Bless the work of those who minister to their needs, that those for whom our prayers are offered may be strengthened in, your, in their weakness and have confidence in your grace and loving care. We pray for wellness and healing, strength and grace for Leah, Eduardo and Shirley, Jeff and Linda, Fawn and Bob, and our friends, Becky and Chris, Bob, Angie, Karen, Tom, Phil, Dominic, Tammy's family, and others who come to mind who we name to you now. Bless Providence Orthodox Presbyterian Church with wisdom and grace to grow in love for you and for each other in making decisions going forward, and may we be faithful in our witness in the Detroit metropolitan area. Hear our prayers. We thank you for the confidence with which you enable us to pray, and we ask you now to hear our prayers as we offer them one by one for the communities where each one of us lives. Almighty God, you are the fountain of all wisdom. You know our needs before we ask. You know our ignorance and limitations in asking. Have compassion on our weakness and give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not, and for our blindness we cannot ask, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Yet for our sakes you became poor, so that 
And now let us pray our prayer for illumination as we prepare to hear God's word read and preached. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We um, recognize its its power, um, its authority, um, its power for life, and we we ask that by the working of your spirit, your word, your spirit would have its way with us in our hearts that we might be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds um, that we would take up our vocations, our identity and vocation in your kingdom. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Our reading begins in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 50. Beginning in verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Our Psalter response is printed in the bulletin. Taken from Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Behind the festival sacrifice of the chorus, up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Our epistle reading is from Philippians chapter 2.
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And now to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word of the Lord. He came riding on a donkey. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, it was not as if this was the only mode of transportation available to Jesus. There were other ways Jesus could have entered the city, such as in a chariot with trumpets blasting their horns, trumpeteers blasting their horns in front of him. I occasionally find these documentary series on Amazon and uh, one of them was on the Roman Empire. It was really fascinating, focusing on the Caesars and the rulers of the Roman Empire. And, and you hear about how they would return to the city after a major war or just, just to return home. Uh, they couldn't seem to just return home, you know, kind of quietly and slip into their villa. They always had to have this huge fanfare. Um, and that's a way Jesus could have entered He could have had his disciples hoist him onto their shoulders like a celebratory team carrying their carrying their coach. We know it's the most of us know it's the NCAA basketball tournament season, and that I see that I see the players lifting up their coach and they walk out of the arena. And so Jesus could have come into the city that way. If nothing else, he could have just walked into the city with a very confident stride, waving and smiling at the crowds. 
as we often see politicians do when they get out of their car and walk in the street. This, however, is not how Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem. He chose to ride on a donkey. Knowing what he wanted, he sent two of his disciples into the nearby town of Bethphage to retrieve the donkey, a donkey and her foal hitched to a rail. Matthew explains that it was to fulfill the words of the prophet Zechariah, who spoke of a triumphant king who was coming humble and riding on a donkey. The letter to the Philippians tells of the humility of Christ and that it began long before he entered Jerusalem. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now these are texts that are heard every year when we get to Palm Sunday, um, one of the Gospels and then uh, quite commonly Philippians 2, Isaiah 50, and we probably can't hear them enough. All of our texts this morning all relate to the humility of the coming one, the humility of Jesus Christ. It's within the very being of God that Christ's humility originated. The Son of God did not proudly demand his glory with, his, with the Father. Rather, he willingly came to us becoming a man. Our reading from Isaiah also speaks of the humility of the coming of the messianic servant. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It's a very raw description of humility, of being humbled. The New Testament writers saw in these words of Isaiah a figure for Jesus Christ. He entered Jerusalem where he was struck and disgraced. So Matthew's gospel echoes Isaiah in its description of Jesus' crucifixion. For when Jesus was taken, first when Jesus was taken before the Jewish council and then when he was in the custody of, the, of Pilate's soldiers, Matthew says they spit upon him and took the reed and struck him on the head and mocked him. And it's definitely an echo of Isaiah 50. So Jesus came to us humble. Being humble, humility, means something to us. It still has positive connotations in our world. Most of us recognize it as a virtue or a good thing for people to be humble. Humble people are pleasant to be around. I'd much rather be around a humble person than an arrogant person. They refuse to dwell on themselves, expecting the rest of us to share in their self-focused fixation. Humility is the opposite of such self-centeredness. And C.S. Lewis has a famous quote, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. But that's a good way to put it. However, we may also understand humility as a sign of inferiority, weakness, and failure. So there are still some good connotations of humility, and there's also a sense of humility being not so good, a sign of failure. Here's an example. There are leaders of countries who refuse to step down from their office. There might be some modicum of democracy or some way of transferring power in a nation. It comes time for that. Uh, the, the leader loses the vote or he just has to step down by constitutional um, requirement and he won't do it. And this was the case in Ivory Coast uh, a few years ago and that's a nation on the west side of the continent of Africa. This nation held an election. The incumbent president, Mr. Gbagbo, I practiced this many times. I hope I can get it. Gbagbo lost. He refused to step down, and then there began to be sporadic fighting. 
Mr. Gabagbo's reasons were not clear, but surely he didn't want to give up the power and honor that he held. Mr. Gabagbo, eventually um, his forces rose up, his soldiers that were loyal to him, and they stood and fought for the, elect, for the president. And then there were the soldiers and other people who stood and, and uh, fought for the newly elected president. So they came together. There was lots of fighting. Um, eventually, the forces trying to remove Mr. Gabagbo from power got the upper hand, and the, they surrounded the president's palace. Mr. Gabagbo was removed from power. They captured him. They show, there were photos showing a man who was disgraced, wearing casual dress clothes, not his, his triumphant kind of garments that he usually wore. And he was very weary, and he had a worried look on his face. He was humiliated. That's one way we might describe that. He was humiliated. And we can look upon those who are humiliated as losers. Humility in our world may also be the cause of derision. And so public humiliation can end up on Saturday Night Live as, or as another way to humiliate someone, turning whatever happened into satire and the source of humor for millions of people tuned in. However, it may have looked to the people in the first century, a grown man riding on a donkey looks silly today. Um, if you remember Bob Carstens, he was a former member of the church. He raised a question after this. He had a way of pointed questions, but raised a question after um, I had made this point before about uh, when I preached on Palm Sunday, Jesus on the donkey, and I had interpreted it in the sense of, um, which we would, most of us would today, you know, this, this uh, sort of inglorious way of riding on a, an animal. And uh, the donkey sort of a, a sign of weakness and humility. And he pointed out that back in the day, the donkeys that would have been in the Roman Empire in that part of the world would have been pretty tall, sturdy, strong beasts and were often used um, by uh, military leaders and others to, to ride in. And so he, he corrected, I don't know how gentle it was, but he corrected um, what I had said there. And I took that to heart, and I think he's, I looked into it, he's right. Um, there was a different perception of donkeys, and it fits well in our text just because Jesus is the king. He's the humble king coming in. And so as kings in Israel had come in on donkeys, there's that king aspect who's coming in, but there's also the humility aspect. But that's not the way we see it today in our world. We look at a donkey, we, in our minds we think of a mule, a smaller animal, not a big steed a powerful horse or some, you know, or a presidential limousine. We don't think of that kind of a ride. We think of more like a mule. So can you imagine the stars of the old Western movies riding on donkeys? It, it, it just wouldn't run. The, the Lone Ranger saying, hi-ho, silver on a donkey. It just seems ludicrous when we think about that. Or the Magnificent Seven, the old movie, Magnificent Seven, with Yul Brynner, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson. These are men's men. You know, these are, these are guys who are... Yeah, you just <clears throat> you don't want to mess with them. And can you see them trotting into town on donkeys? See, that's what that gets turned into the satire, like the Three Amigos. That's what they do, but not Charles Bronson, um, Steve McQueen. Jesus riding on the donkey in our perceptions today looks weak. It doesn't convey strength, command, and power. Men on donkeys are followers, not leaders. That's how we see it. Like Sancho Panza on his donkey following behind Don Quixote. Don Quixote dressed in armor. Yeah, he was, he was loony, but he looked powerful. He thought of himself very, he was very impressed with himself. Dressed in armor, he had a long lance seated on this very spirited challenger. And then little Sancho Panza coming behind on his donkey. 
Our world is full of power, brute, forceful, dominating power, and power impresses us, not humility. Jesus came humble, riding on a donkey. So we have our own understanding of humility in this world, but let's consider Christ's humility. Jesus Christ defines his own humility. The world's humility, even at its best, can be thrown around Christ like a coat, and he, we're trying to make him wear it. And we need to stop that and, and listen to the word of God to know what Christ's humility is. He sets out for us what his humility, he defines his own humility. Christ's humility is his coming down from heaven to earth. And this is not a mere change of location, a simple journey from there to here. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who shares in the glory of the Father and the Spirit. Our Philippians reading says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The form of God is the pre-existence glory of his divinity. So when the scripture says he was in the form of God, it's talking about his pre-existence existent glory of his divinity, the glory of being the creator, all things were made through him, the glory of being almighty and lord over all things, the glory of his holiness, he's pure and undefiled by sin, infinite glory reaching beyond our senses, filling all of heaven and earth, spreading out beyond, it's like trying to fill a cup with the ocean, that's what his glory is like. His glory just far exceeds any kind of container that could ever be made for it. The Son was equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit in glory. This Son, the radiance of the Father's glory, came down from heaven to earth. He came down to us by becoming a man and taking on our finite, frail, sinful humanity upon himself. The one who is glorious in his divinity took on our poor humanity. He never set aside his glorious divinity. How could he do that? How can God set aside God? It it doesn't work. Christ never stopped being God, not even for a moment. He veiled his divinity behind his humanity. The glorious Son of God came humble, seated upon a donkey. Now, we could say that Christ's humility was God accommodating himself to us. That was a very... Uh, a very popular way in theology in the Reformation to talk about God accommodating himself to us. Uh, We're small, we're limited. Our minds reach only so far. In some ways, our minds have extended beyond the older previous margins of knowledge, yet even as our knowledge and intellect grow, they are still limited. We are earthly creatures who can never encompass the Almighty God, our Creator, Our minds and hearts cannot break through to his heavenly being and purpose. So how can the finite know the infinite? How can the unholy know the holy, righteous one? How can sinners comprehend God's gracious compassion to save us? But God accommodates himself to us so that we may know him and his salvation. uh, The psalm says, that men may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. We find this divine accommodation throughout scripture. And one way to look at the animals, for example, one way to look at the animals that Israel sacrificed for their sin, according to God's command, was that they were that these, uh, the sacrificial system was God's accommodation to Israel so that it could know his mercy and forgiveness. Or the signs that God gives in the Bible, like the sign of the rainbow, circumcision, Passover, baptism, Lord's Supper, 
are accommodations to us so that we might know his faithfulness and grace to us. The words of Scripture can be understood as God's accommodation to us, the very words themselves, language that talks about God's hands and feet, applying human characteristics to God, anthropomorphic language that's called. The strange details in some of the biblical stories like God calling Moses out of a burning bush or his presence in the thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai or at the tabernacle. All of these are God's accommodation to us. And there's also God's accommodation in Christ coming to us so that we may know his salvation. Christ accomplishes that salvation and he reveals it. And how can we know what that salvation is unless God accommodates himself to us, which he does in Christ? Thus Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. The humility of Christ is God's accommodation to us. God truly does accommodate himself to us, but Christ's humility is much more than that. Christ's humility is his giving of himself. The Messiah says in Isaiah, I gave my back to those who strike. The gospel story is that Jesus was leading the way on the donkey to go and die on the cross. Philippians tells us that Christ did not try to hold on to his glory. Christ willingly gave himself to do that. He was not coerced, and he was not given an ultimatum. Give yourself or else. That's not what happened. The Gospels do not teach us to think that when he did come, he was at the mercy of this world, like he just fell into the power of this world, and the world did what it would to him. No, Jesus Christ came and gave himself. The church's, of the church's doctrine of the Trinity puts it like this. The Father sent the Son. The Son willingly went or presented himself to go. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to that purpose and willingness of Christ. Christ gave himself to take up our inglorious humanity. He gave himself to be beaten, spit on, and mocked. Christ gave himself humble, seated on a donkey, to die upon the cross. Christ defines his own humility. It is his coming down from heaven to earth, veiling his divinity under his humanity, and it is his giving himself. And why did Jesus Christ humble himself? For us. For each one of us. We who find ourselves as fickle as the crowds on the day he rode into Jerusalem, shouting on on one, one day, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, and then a few days later shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For us whose sin lies deep within us so that our default is ourselves instead of the God who made us and rules over us. Or our sin that wants to assert ourselves instead of giving ourselves to each other. Jesus Christ came humble to give himself to be the sacrifice for our sins and to reconcile us with God. Now, Palm Sunday, which of course is today, takes the church right to the observance of Christ's passion, his suffering and death. Some churches have two services on Sunday um, for this very purpose. Palm Sunday is observed in the morning, um, and I've mentioned this before. Whenever I think of Palm Sunday, I always go back to my childhood where the church would hand out palms to all of us. Kids love the palms, especially because they could become swords, you know, and you fight with them. But we'd get these palms, we'd walk out of the church having sung these great, wonderful hymns that go with Palm Sunday and waving the palms, and we participated in that. 
And then uh, later, there could be another service. Some churches have another service that's focused on the actual Christ going to the cross. It's a much more somber service. And uh, it's, it's difficult to put both of those together into one service, so that often gets split. Um, but there is that, that, uh, also that part of, of Palm Sunday that focuses on Christ's passion, his suffering, his death. Traditionally, at that service where it is focused on his, his uh, death, uh, one of the gospel stories of Jesus' passion is read. And I'd like to read part of it to you, that's Paul, that passion story, just part of it, keeping in mind that Jesus came humble, riding on a donkey in order to give himself for us. So keep that in mind. And this comes from Matthew's gospel, just a couple paragraphs uh, from Matthew 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hands, in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And then they mocked after they, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. For us, God sent his Son, and Jesus Christ came in humility to forgive our sin and reconcile us to our God so that we are his beloved people. We can hear that story and we can think about all the things being done to Jesus as just the wicked acts of people who've rejected God and, and hated Jesus. Or we can see it, that's true, but we can also see it as Jesus giving himself and putting himself into all of that for us. As we follow Christ in faith and obedience, we take on Christ's humility. That's what's going to happen, and that is what happens. As we follow Jesus Christ in faith and obedience, we take on Christ's humility. Now, it's going to happen over a lifetime, but it does. The church is made humble when it follows Christ. When we do not follow Christ, then we pick up the hunger for power and self-glory of this world. But when we follow Christ, we will be humble like he is humble. Not our own kind of humility, but Christ's humility. We follow him as he rode on the donkey, humble, and that is our path. Giving ourselves to others, not for our own power and honor, but for their sake. 
Did you know that most of the churches in this world are small and tiny and struggling and hardly attract any notice unless something happens? I uh, once went to visit my wife's parents who live in a small town, or they did live in a small town in Nebraska. Her father wanted to take us out to see a Lutheran church that was about 35 miles south of Adams, Nebraska, which is south of Lincoln. So it's, it's way out there. It was in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by cornfields and one or two distant farmhouses. Out there, they have these huge tracts of farmland. They, they measure their land by sections, not acres. Um, a section is 640 acres. It's a mile by a mile. And they have several of those. So everything is very spread out. And in that area, German Christian immigrants came together and established the church in 1875. There is still a congregation there. You would not know it, know about it unless you were looking for it. You would have to be seriously lost to find that church. And yet, there is this church where Christ's people gather and worship God and care for those in need. Most Christian churches are like that. Now, we're Americans. We like big, you know, uh, something that really stands out and catches the eye and has this prominent place in society. And there was a time when Protestant churches were like that in this country, and not so much anymore. Even back in that, those days, though, there were plenty of small, unknown churches. But we like the big and the beautiful churches that make it onto postcards, that somehow make a name for themselves. But um, they're not, they're, most churches are not like that. And they're not just out in the country, they're in the cities. All over the Detroit metropolitan area are small, struggling, weak churches following Christ. And I wonder... If this is the way that God wants it. In the main, the church in its very existence in this world is small and weak, poor and struggling, but still reaching out to others with the love of Jesus Christ. We embody the humility of Christ. The powers of this world try to steal away the humility of Christ in the church. They want to make it subservient to them. They want to use it somehow. Make to, to make themselves greater and more powerful, kind of like a mega corporation adding one more accomplishment to its portfolio. If we can just grab these churches and loop them in to what we're all about, such as co-opting the church's humility to be just another non-government organization trying to alleviate crises in this world, or sucking the church into the world's political categories and control. Well, they can try, but they shall not succeed because Jesus Christ died on the cross, defeating the powers of this world and gaining salvation for us. The church's humility is the humility of the cross, the humility of Jesus Christ crucified for the sin of the world. We give ourselves so that others may be healed of their sin and be reconciled to God and to each other. Our humility in the church is giving ourselves for the good news of Christ's humility for the world. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for the human race, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, accomplishing for us our salvation and giving us the very definition of your humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and also share in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.
If you would, please stand and we'll confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. In the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 300, Blessing and Honor and Glory and Power.
The Lord instituted this meal with his words at the first supper, or sometimes called the last supper, that he had with his disciples, the last before his death, and then the beginning of that supper with the church. So as we hear the words of this institution, there's also a promise in it. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There's a promise there that in this he gives his body and blood to us to feed us, to strengthen us, to confirm that we belong to him, that we are part of his body. When Jesus instituted this Holy Supper, he used real bread and real wine, which are signs of his body and his blood, but also real food, right, for our bodies. We shouldn't forget this started as part of a bigger meal, probably the Passover meal. And so out of it um, are, is real food that's being used. That's why all the, the digital versions of this are just stupid. But anyway. And yes, you heard that online. Um, but doing... So he reveals that his death and resurrection is for the physical part of us as well as the spiritual part. It's not virtual. It's, it's physical. It's full. It's real. The Lord created our bodies and he redeems them to love him and obey his word along with our hearts and minds. And also the bread and the cup show us that the creation is included in God's redemption in Christ. So when you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, know that your body is redeemed by Christ and so is his creation in which you live makes the creation very important. It's my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all who have been baptized, professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and are communicant members of a Christian church to come to this, his table. It is the Lord's table. We don't get to dictate the terms of coming to it. It's for his disciples. It's for those who have responded to him in faith, who have been baptized, identified with him. And so it's for the church. He invites us to feast with him. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life and to live in love and concern for each other. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for his salvation and new life in Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Uh, let's begin with the assertion uh, court. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is indeed right and just in our duty and our salvation and always and everywhere to give you thanks, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God. This is what is sometimes called the Eucharist, the giving thanks, the thanksgiving for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And at this time of his passion and resurrection, we join with the whole church in acknowledging his hidden majesty and the power of the life-giving cross that reveals the judgment that has come upon the world and the triumph of Christ crucified. He's the victim who dies no more. He's the lamb that was once slain, who lives forever, our advocate in heaven to plead our cause to represent us in your presence, exalting us there to join with all the hosts of heaven who are forever praising you and saying... Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Accept our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and as we follow his example and obey his command, grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
These gifts of bread and the cup may be for us a communion in his body and blood. For we do receive them with the faith of the church that has been encapsulated very neatly in the, in the very ancient phrases, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his offering of himself made once for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom. And with this bread and this cup, we make the memorial of Christ, your son, our Lord. Except through him, who is our great high priest, this our sacrifice of thanks and praise. And as we eat and drink these holy gifts in the presence of your divine majesty, Renew us by your spirit, inspire us with your love, unite us in the body of your Son through Jesus Christ our Lord. We offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you humbled yourself in taking the form of a servant and in obedience died on the cross for our salvation. Give us the mind to follow you and to proclaim you as Lord and King to the glory of you, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our final hymn is number 237, Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. Please be seated, and uh, good morning to everyone. It is great to see you today. Um, 
So we have, of course, other, uh, other big announcements, but in terms of general announcements, um, I will just remind you that we're having kind of a, uh, a, a brief official meeting and then a, um, a longer, um, though probably not that long, um, but a longer sort of announcement from the, the session. And um, so we will not be having Christian education today, uh, but we will continue in upcoming weeks um, with adults continuing in Gentle and Lowly, uh, as led by Elder Kelly. Uh, We are, I believe, at chapter six starting, or maybe five, a few last words. So um, if you've been, uh, if you have not been uh, around for that, it is uh, an edifying time together. So um, if you have the book, and I noticed there are a couple of copies on the um, on the back table as well, if you still need one, um, I would also point you to just continuing to uh, remember our various uh, charitable giving uh, at this time. So, uh, for the Diaconal Pantry, uh, for the Arab American Friendship Center, I believe there's a uh, a list on the box actually for that. Uh, I, I no, I snapped a picture of it a few weeks ago and pull that out when I go to the store. So, um, continue to. Um, continue to keep those in mind as well. Um, are there other general announcements before we get to... Just the Bible study is on hold until... Uh, on break until April the 20th, according to this. Not meeting this Thursday or the next Thursday after that. Alright, and women's prayer meeting, I believe, is the same day also? Is the 20th. Okay, so women's prayer meeting and the Thursday Bible study will both next meet on Thursday, April 20th. Mrs. Collins? Yes, so, yes, so we will do, uh, as far as the sequence of, um, of upcoming things, or of, of the rest of our, probably not morning anymore together, um, but we will, uh, we're going to start, as we usually do, kind of start, formally start the congregational meeting and um, so that we can make sure that we have a quorum, uh, we'll take a recess, a brief recess, uh, because um, after the meetings, uh, then we intend to have a picnic uh, for those who are here to uh, and um, who want to sit and fellowship and um, and chat. Good and yes, service Good Friday at one o'clock p.m. So uh, Good Friday, which is this upcoming Friday, uh, we'll meet for those who are able to make it at one o'clock for that. So, other hands? Yes, Mr. Roberts. Uh, just, we're, we're really close on quorum. Yes. So, this, the first meeting is going to be the official conversation. Correct. It's going to be very brief, so please, please, please stay with that so we can Yeah, we're, we're going to start that right now, unless anybody else has something else. Okay. So, as I said, we're going to, like, formally start that meeting, um, and uh, so I uh, will be moderating that, so I consider this... Yes, go ahead. I just need to drop this. Well, we can, we can, we can recess and finish it. I, I decided against the, uh, the common consent version. Right, yeah. So, we'll, we'll recess and then okay. complete. So, um, all right. So, for the formal congregational meeting, which is a, uh, has a one-item uh, agenda... Uh, I'm calling this to order at 11.18 a.m., and we do, as Mr. Robert says, have a quorum, barely, um, but we do have a quorum, so thank you for being here, uh, for every, every vote counts and every, uh, every attendee counts. Um, so I will, uh, I will just state the business uh, of the meeting. It's, as I said, it's a one-point agenda, uh, but we are um, moving. There's a, uh, a request to dissolve our call to 
uh, Adam Estella, um, who we called some few years back. Um, but the purpose uh, of dissolving that call is so that he can accept a, a call in a different capacity elsewhere. And so it's a, it's a good reason. And I don't see a whole lot of um, conversation, but if there is any, we can address that. So that is the purpose of our meeting, is uh, just to formally dissolve that call and leave him free to accept uh, a different call. So, um, before moving on, I would uh, entertain a motion to have, let's call it a 10-minute recess so people can visit the bathroom and get a drink if they need to. Do I have a motion for a 10-minute recess? And is there a second? Is there any discussion on that motion? I didn't think so. All those in favor of taking a 10-minute resource before resuming our meeting, please signify by saying aye. aye. All opposed? The ayes have it. We are in recess.